Howdy, friends. I'm coming to you all the way from Boston as my trip across America continues, and so do the podcasts, and this week it is something very special indeed. Robin Swan and Anthony Summers are investigative authors and two of the world's foremost authorities on the Madeleine McCann case. You may recognise them from the Netflix series, which has recently reignited public interest in what was already the world's most famous missing child case. And given that it feels like everybody has an opinion on what happened to little Madeline, I thought it might be a good idea to get some experts in who can actually take us through the real evidence. So today we will be walked through the most important elements of the case. We will be told exactly what the status of the investigation is now. And Robin and Anthony will tell us their opinion on what really happened to Madeline McCann. Now, if you have a friend who has a strongly held theory of their own, I urge you to share this podcast with them to hopefully help to illuminate exactly what is going on with this case. I do think that the common understanding and the the common interpretation of exactly what went on appears to be so far from the truth based on what we hear today that it really is quite important for this message to get out. As always, I would really appreciate the shares and if you have any questions or comments or feedback at Chris Willex on all social media or the Modern Wisdom YouTube channel is waiting for you as well. Further to that, if you want to find out more, you can head to the show notes below and grab Looking for Madeline, Robin and Anthony's book, which has just been updated for 2019 with new evidence and new information. That will be in the show notes below. But for now, please welcome Anthony and Robin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I am joined by Robin Swan and Anthony Summers. You may recognise them from the most recent Netflix series on the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you are investigative journalists, but you're also married, and you've been working together for about 30 years. Is that right? That's, I think, what my wife would say. Um, um <laughs> I, I, One of us works. Right. I've never, I've never really been fond of that description, investigative journalist. Okay. When asked what I am, I suppose I would say, and asked to nail it down, am I a bank manager or an, an engine driver or an investigative journalist? I would go for the third. <laughs> um, but I always think that it's a misnomer in the sense that everyone in this business, in, in the journalist business, should, in theory, try to dig beyond the grass that you can see and find out what's underneath. I totally and, get and that. Yet, that is what we do, um, that, and that's what we've done in our career together. Yes. So having a look at your back catalogue of books, um, 9-11, Pearl Harbor, Richard Nixon, and Madeleine McCann, there's some uh, high-pressure topics in there. Do you ever find the... Uh, difficulty and the emotion and the pressure of writing with quite inflammatory topics ever? Do, do the lines kind of get crossed with the relationship at all? Does that ever kind of come in or are you able to kind of mediate those pretty effectively? As a thoroughly cowed uh, husband and co-author, I will leave Robin to answer that. <laughs> uh, I, ser- 
on a serious note, always the one to interject the serious note here. Um, <laughs> you know, frankly, we're we're incredibly lucky to be able to do the kind of work we do. You know, what a privilege to to be able to explore you know some of the most important cultural and historical moments of the last century and try to bring your own little bit of extra information into that um, to try to write that story well. Sure, there's there's pressure um, and, and we don't always agree, but I think the reason we have found that we're able to work together well is that we have, sometimes we have slightly different strengths, but we're both incredibly relentless uh, when it comes to the digging. And, and, and you know, the we really are, you know, if one isn't pushing, the other one is. And I think so. So we have a real simpatico in that way. But also, I think each of us respects the others, uh, the others talent. You know, um, Tony has an extraordinary ability to make the complex simple, uh, you know, to, to drive what we call a coach and horses through a, a, a naughty problem and make it possible for readers to understand something in a really, you know, basic but interesting way. And, and I think, you know, I'm pretty good at, at you know, getting the big picture of things and, and, and you know, delivering, you know, to the, to the project all the nuts and bolts so that we can do that, so that we can have that material to, to, to base the story on. You know, I, I think Robin's been talking rather as though she said we don't, we, we don't really clash on things. Well, but quite often we say, no, that's not right. No, it's not right because, look, this is what I was digging up, or this is of the X hundred interviews we've done on a subject. Um, so do, do you remember that so-and-so said this? So we have to think about that. And what the important thing is that that we're playing mental ping-pong, and it's, it's a terrific asset, actually. Um, I have... A, a, friend and sometime colleague um, in the United States who already done one book about that seemingly eternal story, the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. And having done one book, which was a success, uh, and quite a serious book, not, not just one of those books, one more of those books about the Kennedy assassination, he launched into the research for a second. He has been on that now by my most recent count, for about 25 years, possibly more, on his own. And I think that's fatal for him. I, I've got a feeling he's going to die without the book having been published. But what he lacks is what we, we do have, which is someone to pay, play intellectual ping pong with, to say, well, I've just written these couple of paragraphs. What do you think about that? Is, is that fair? Isn't that fair? All he, all he can do is rattle around in, in his own head. And it's a huge advantage to have two people who are sort of on the same wavelength about things working together. I suppose as well, when we're talking about these inflammatory topics that are highly charged, it's the sort of thing that requires quadruple checking and you don't want to be making any errors. Absolutely. Cool. You, you bet. And then, of course, at the end of each book trail you then have the not only the editor and the art of editing and publishing is except in some circumstances is not what once it was when i came into the business mm -hmm. at the beginning uh, but then 
and this is a real discipline too, not least in this case, which has seen a lot of lawsuits, you then have the lawyer, and a good lawyer will make sure that you're not making huge gratuitous errata and getting yourself into great libel suit. On the other hand, a good lawyer will, will, will be one who does not just crush what you're trying to say, yeah. and, and one has to be very careful of that. But I, I also think, and, and, and perhaps more important than what any what we think or what any lawyer thinks or, or anything like that, is we are trying to get to the historical truth here. You know, in our 9-11 book, we were writing at the time that all of the 9-11 truth movement was, was at its height. And there were stories circulating about World Trade Center 7 and, uh, you know, what hit the Pentagon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera that just had no basis in fact. And these are people's lives, their loved ones were talking about, you know, did a missile, was it not really a plane that hit the Pentagon? Wasn't it a missile? Well, what happened to, the, to, the, to, to all of the victims who are on that plane? Are you not thinking of their family? Have you no compassion when you come forward with a wild conspiracy theory about what really happened there? Have you not, as I have done, looked at the exhibits in the Musawi case, with Zacharias Musawi, another of the, the uh, suspects in the 9-11 in the attacks, the exhibits in that case show very clearly um, some horribly graphic images of the victims of the plane attack on the Pentagon. You know, this kind of, you know, conspiracy theory, fake news, it's been around a long time. And, you know, it's our job as, as historians or journalists or whatever you want to call us to try to get beyond that to the actual truth of the event, because there has to be some reality there, there you know you ha you are entitled to your own opinion but you are not entitled to your own facts and, and that's and that remains true it was always true and it will be ever thus you know you know these days we talk about the trolls the internet trolls um i we we didn't have the word trolls or although it existed in stories about magic and so on <laughs> It, it, we didn't use the word trolls in journalism. We had the cranks. And you'd know you were getting a letter from a crank. When I did my first book, I got thousands of letters. Letters, those those old-fashioned things yep. that you sent through the post with a stamp on them. Yep. And, um, and I would know immediately the, the nature of the person writing to me um, because they would either have um, bright red ink or green ink on the cut on the address in writing the address um, probably in capital letters um, and written sometimes very carefully and you knew that inside there would be a co communication from a crank possibly with with an idea um, suggestion about the story mm -hmm. but not usually vituperative not usually full of venom now there's a totally different phenomenon which you've seen i'm sure regularly, which is the stuff that comes in over the internet, which is often from people who really should be locked up. <laughs> well, the, the problem is that it's so easy for people to just, the distance from brain to fingertips or brain to mouth <laughs> has been reduced so far. Um, and with ease of access and, you know, if you guys have Twitter or Instagram or a Facebook page or whatever it is, it takes someone two seconds, they browse on a mobile app and they can, uh, 
uh, they can delegate their opinion out to the masses, as, as it were, uh, even when a lot of the time it's probably not worthy of that. Um, so I want to get on without to- and, and without consulting their conscience. Oh, or yeah. well, they forget their own. They're without consulting their own humanity. They forget that there's a person on the other end of this, and mm. you know, as you touched on there, Robin. People forget, and this is a key point that I want to discuss with regards to the Madeleine McCann case, that people do forget it's it's not just a story. And the same thing goes for this. You guys aren't fiction writers and they're not complaining at you because you've ended the story in a way that they didn't like. It's that you're reporting the facts in as virtuously a way as you guys can. And if they don't like the way that the facts come across, presuming that you've done it with to the best of your professional abilities, they're really just arguing with reality. Their problem mm-hmm. is, I don't like what reality is serving me. I-, I need someone to vent at. And it happens to be that your name is on the front cover of the book, front cover of the book or in the credits of the TV show. Um, so moving on to the Madeleine McCann case, the first thing upon watching the most recent Netflix series, and I'm sure lots of people who are listening will have seen it as well. The first thing that struck me was how, um, I don't want to say bungled, but how oddly the case was dealt with upon immediate investigation in terms of the crime scene, in terms of everything else. That was, that was probably the most, one of the most shocking things I got out of it. Well, when you, you mentioned the crime scene, um, and I guess you're thinking about the accounts, which um, I, I've obviously also, although we were interviewed for the series, we, we weren't part of it. In the Netflix series, uh, we, we are in each episode, so we have watched it closely. And we found that um, virtually everything, um, and I mean 99.9%, was accurate so so far as we know. Um, and we, I think, ourselves in in the, in the shows, discuss what happened in the crime scene. Woman, woman goes into apartment apparently, finds child missing, goes out, makes a terrible cry all the considerably large party, nine or 10 people, the other doctors and their friends come come rushing to the apartment. They're all there, all trampling around the apartment. Um, and, um, and then they call, the police are called. When the police eventually arrive, they come in, they trample around the apartment. At some point, dogs come into the, the search dogs come into the apartment. And that is completely contrary to what the police like, the way the police like a crime scene to be handled in what they call the golden hour, the first hour. That is why uh, when one sees, uh, for instance, a shooting in the street, you see on the news nightly um, scenes in which the police have put up tapes and stop people, stop people trampling over the golden evidence, the first evidence, the evidence was there. And that wasn't done in this case. But you talk about the, the possible bungling and so on. Well, there was bungling at some stage in the investigation. But it, there's, there's also a thing called human nature. When the police were called to the apartment, they thought there was a little girl who was missing. Had she wandered off? What had happened? Where, where was she? Maybe she's going to turn, out in, turn up in the, in the wardrobe, under, under the bed. Maybe she's there really. Maybe she's just hiding from mummy and daddy. Um, and uh, of course, the, the, none of that 
proved to, proved to be the case. But during that time, people are not were not thinking of a crime, a possible crime. They they weren't thinking of something sinister that wouldn't be solved for for more than a decade. They were just trying to find that little girl who might be here. So there was a reason and and a sort of a justification for why the golden hour was ignored. Mm. I suppose it's a <clears throat> short-term pain for a long-term gain that you need to make a judgment on upon the beginning of the case, right? You need to, they want to think, oh, well, if she is in here somewhere or if it's not a crime, we <clears throat> need to work more expeditiously rather than uh, delicately. But obviously the benefit of hindsight is is fantastic. And looking back, you say, well, why didn't they just close the uh, the case off? I think... I think what you say is true, but I, I also think it was a, a, a resource and, and division of labor issue as well. But the first Portuguese police office to arrive on the scene were the sort of local beat cops who, who uh, you know, were, would not necessarily have been all that clued into the idea of crime scene preservation, etc. Whereas immediately an hour later, when the more senior detectives arrived, they were themselves horrified by this, you know, tarnishing of, of the of the of the evidence by having all these people trample it. You know, they were none too pleased with their colleagues that this had happened. And I think uh, that was then compounded that the Portuguese police's initial mistakes in terms of the crime scene were then compounded by two other things. One, they failed to clear the parents of involvement. You know, usually in cases like this, it is always a family member who you look at first. And uh, in, in the words of the, the policeman who was responsible for reviewing this case and deciding, you know, it wasn't handled very well, um, he thought that they had failed to clear the, clear the ground in front of them. And that's, that's an important mistake that should have been addressed very early on. Instead, it, it, it festered. And the second thing was the involvement of the British police. You know, you had a, a crime taking a crime or an abduction or a missing child taking place in Portugal, but she's a British child. So therefore, um, the parents who don't speak the language are immediately reaching out for all the support they can get. And that's coming back at them in terms of multiple police agencies, all wanting to help, all wanting to get their patch in, all, all wanting to be the hero. Um, and that also didn't play well. It felt to the Portuguese like the Brits were trampling all over them and being a colonial power and, and being arrogant. And, and, and the, the Portuguese themselves uh, became very suspicious. What are all these you know, British police officers doing? And we're having, or actually having their, their British police colleagues followed. So, so the bad relationship, again, didn't help in any attempt to find Madeline. Also, the British thought that the Portuguese were were living in the Stone Age in the sense that they weren't computerized in the way that people from when Scotland Yard eventually became involved, or just the police that were sent out on liaison at first from England. Um, they saw all the, you know, cards in boxes and uh, and a sort of tem temporary headquarters with a lot of paperwork and so on, and and guys typing with two fingers on on, on old typewriters. That's that's not how it happens at police headquarters in England anymore. Um, and so there grew a feeling that the Portuguese felt as though they were be, being, at a certain level, thought they were being treated as though they were from the third world. 
They, they, um, they're not presented. Fair enough. Yeah, they're, they're not presented fantastically well, I suppose. Um, and there definitely does seem to be a, um, a lot of friction that you can tell between themselves and everyone else. And you've got the, uh, chief, I think it was the chief of Portuguese police being, uh, the times he was going for lunch and coming back were being noted down in the newspaper and the British newspapers were being quite, quite uh, accusatory and, uh, and stuff like that. So that, that takes us on to the, the press coverage. And a question that I really wanted to ask you was, why do you think this particular case captured such international attention, both at the time and then why, why is it still doing it now? Was it right place, right time? Was it the, did it have the right look? Look, I, the, the real reason, the initial reason that there was huge press coverage was because the McCanns, quite wisely, they thought, wanted it. In the end, it became the bane of their existence. But that night, when they were sitting in their agony after the police had come and the police had, had gone for the time being at three, four o'clock in the morning, they sat with their friends in, in apartment 5A with the, their little girl missing and they thought, well, what can we do? That the police, are the police doing enough? No, maybe they took a long time to come. Maybe they're not. And maybe so we should do something. They tried to reach out to TV stations through relatives in the UK on the, by, on the telephone. And by eight or nine o'clock in, in the morning, the news was, it was very brief, but the news was being broadcast on Sky News and, and, and other stations in the UK, where as at, at, at the time it wasn't on, on Portuguese news, I gather, at all. Um, and during the case, um, it is there's a Portuguese law which says that information cannot be given out, should not be given out by law while it's ongoing. Now, that's very different from the reality, which in, later on involved, um, you know, people saying things on the QT, saying on the quiet, saying um, to, to journalists, we, 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 we can't, we're not telling you this really, but happens everywhere. It's an old fashioned police tactic. Um, but but it, it, it got let loose. But anyway, from the McCann's own effort, the press first knew about it. But the, what the McCann's, by their own admission, also thought was, wait a minute, this is the age of the internet. Jerry McCann, the, the father, had a, a sister, I believe, called Philomena, in, in, in the north of Scotland, who was um, hip to computers and who had students and she brought um, her, her students or former students into a garage, a sort of makeshift shed where they sat. And within, what, 24, 36 hours, people in New Zealand knew about this case, people who would never otherwise have known about it, which had the effect of getting Madeline's picture, the picture of the little girl out there to millions, whereas in, in a similar case in the past, it would not have gone out to millions, or certainly not for a very long time. Um, and in the end, though, starting an avalanche of chatter on the internet, um, chatter which was often far from responsible. I think you are totally right that it became a, a monster of its own and started to roll along on its own momentum. Um, 
it's a difficult situation, you know, to the listeners at home. I, I wonder what they think they would have done in that situation. Would you have allowed the police to have conducted the investigation quietly? Would you have thought that that was the best route or would you have tried to react by getting as much information, as much exposure as possible to have this, have the photo of this little girl out there? I, I would guess that the vast majority of people would just want maximum exposure as much. It feels like you're doing something, right? Like you, you're helpless in this situation. What can I do? What can I actually, how can I impact and help? Um, you know, you're not an investigator. You don't understand forensics. You don't have these sort of things. So one of the things you can do is disseminate, right? But that's, that's not only your natural reaction, but it's also the best advice from, from the experts in the field. You know, some of your listeners might be too young to remember it, but years ago when, you know, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in the U.S. first got going, for instance, they were behind a great campaign where missing children's faces were put on those those cardboard milk cartons. Mm -hmm. And that was a way of getting maximum exposure because everybody got a carton of milk. Yeah. That was a way of getting maximum exposure for every missing child, and it's a brilliant tool. And the internet is a wonderful and enormous milk carton in that sense. <laughs> but so, so it does, I mean, it could, it, it can be incredibly effective. And what we do know is that publicity does help you know, th there was a recent case, I believe, in Minnesota where a young, a young girl was m missing for a period of months and she was spotted by a passerby because her face was recognized. You see these kind of things in the Elizabeth Smart case. Um, again, she was recognized. There was an oddity about uh, the, 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 you know, the, the scene she was seen in by a passerby and it was brought to police attention. So the idea that maximum exposure um, isn't the right thing is actually wrong. It is the right thing, but it can turn around and bite you back. Yeah, and it could. Been, sorry, it could have been precisely the right thing in the case of, of little Madeleine McCann. Um, not least because Madeleine McCann had a thing called a coloboma, which is um, scientific word, medical word for a blemish, in her right pupil of her right eye. Um, which, if you were, if she was walking past you in in a store or along the pavement, you, you wouldn't notice immediately. But it was a blemish; it was an obvious thing. So, in those first days when she was missing, and even later, if you had, if people's attention had been drawn to this feature of, of her eyes, then perhaps she she could have, might have been recognised and and the police or the, the shop security or wherever could, 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 have, could have been called. So it was, a, it was like the picture on the milk carton. It was a relevant thing to do. Yes, I understand. Why, why was there so much flip-flopping and um, so many very inflammatory headlines about this case? I don't know how it works with libelous press coverage and stuff like that, but upon reading just a cross-section that you see on the documentary, it struck me just how outlandish some of the headlines were, like Robert Murat being accused of everything under the sun. Uh, the I think he's a Swiss national, the guy that was the computer programmer. Um, Russian. <coughs> Russian. Russian. Um, he was being accused of everything under the sun. They'd flip-flop from the police being at fault to 
the McCanns being at fault to the dogs to not the dogs to it just seemed like the most temperamental um and and maximally uh extreme headlines that could come out about this case at all times is is that is there an understanding or an explanation for that <sighs> it sells papers uh, that, that I don't mean that I, this case continues to sell papers. It's, it's, it's a terrible, a terrible truth. But the, the real thing that seemed to be going on during that summer of 2007, going into the fall of 2008, is that the, the, the police, the Portuguese police were becoming frustrated with the way they were being portrayed in the British press. So they were leaking to their Portuguese press contacts, little bits of information that they were developing that was counter to the narrative of the McCanns as victims. That would get printed in the Portuguese press and then picked up and reprinted in the British press with a few little nuances of their own, the translation issue, uh, etc. That would then in turn come back and uh, play again into the Portuguese press system. So they were reporting on the reporting uh, and, and they were reporting on the leaks and it just kept building on itself. And then you had a point in the summer where in their frustration, the Portuguese police did something that they had been offered at the beginning of the summer, which is they took the British police up on the offer of using these highly trained police dogs. And from the moment the police dogs arrived on the scene in Portugal, the entire sort of focus of the case turned from a, a missing child investigation to uh, uh, a sort of murder inquiry. And once that happened, it became open season on the McCanns. Uh, there, was, there was virtually nothing that uh, couldn't be printed about them that, that editors wouldn't approve because they were getting it from multiple quote unquote sources. And, and you know, it, it was, you know, they felt they had journalistic and, and libel cover to do that because there was such a plethora of reporting coming out of Portugal that the British media could pick up on. So it just fed itself. It's so bizarre how um, facts being reported becomes the next story, not the facts itself. And it does, I can see how this kind of um, ever-growing sphere of crazy stories starts to become a, a feedback loop and, and feed itself. So you touched there upon the uh, the dog, the cadaver dog and the, the blood dog, I think, are the two the two that were brought in. Um, the uh, dog handler himself says these, uh, the, you can't ask the dog what it means. It's a very kind of rough-hewn result, but it definitely seems like, oh, am I right in saying that the dog... It could give you, a, it's a hint, it could give you a clue to what might be physical evidence. Yeah. As it turned out, um, it was quite the contrary. Um, it, it, but in the, he, he, told, he told me, she, she said, he said, she said, it became, and with the police by that time being under, in Portuguese terms, extraordinary pressure and feeling pressure, they, they've got to do something, they've got to get somewhere. It was a great shining light, a, a, a moment of, of maybe truth. Yeah. Um, the, the, this is, the, the dogs have discovered real evidence, and the evidence points to Madeline's blood in the apartment 5A, and doesn't this point to a possible accident? And, and the ideas were, 
a possible accident in which she might have died, and might it be that that that, that the McCanns had somehow accidentally, as doctors, um, led, done something to lead to the death of their own child, and then uh, kept her body, and 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 the the fable began to just just grow like topsy, and the, and and journalists and, and reporters who ought to have known better and editors in London who should have known much better and should have said, wait a minute, what do we actually knew? No, uh, ran wild. It was a terrible circus. And um, it took time within the police investigation for the circus to be to, to be corrected. And, and Rob can talk, talk better to that because I think we should make clear that in the end, there was no DNA evidence that pointed to anyone at all. You know, the um, the Portuguese police system is, is different from what we're used to in lots of places in Western Europe. It's a, it's a sort of a prosecutorial system in which the police come up with a hypothesis about where what they think the evidence may support. Whereas we kind of come at it the other way. We have the evidence and then we see where the evidence kind of goes. So there are slightly different nuances there. And so the the scenario that Tony was just describing, which to us now, having read all of the evidence, um, actually is a, is a scenario that is put forward by a senior investigator in the Portuguese police department in September of 2007. I, that, uh, you know, that Madeline um, you know, met an accidental death in the apartment, that her parents hit her body, that they transported it later, and that the McCanns and their friends are all involved in a pact of silence, and in his words, that everyone was lying. And in fact, when we traced the, the actual evidence that had come in back before he came up with this hypothesis, you could see that he was basing it on um, mistranslations, misreadings of incomplete reports, um, a lack of a complete lack of evidence, not necessarily through his fault, but it was just a compilation of all of those things. So, it, for it's instance, a misinterpretation yeah, so, of, of a British forensic report. For instance, when the dogs did their barking and did, made their alerts, they went and they did some scrapings and lifts from various places and started to do the DNA analysis of those. And what they found was that in none of the places that they actually lifted samples from, could they identify any substance as being blood, they identified no DNA as having belonged to Madeline McCann, and they identified no DNA as belonging to any specific member of the McCann family. They did find some DNA of Jerry McCann on a key fob. Well, they might have done because he was holding the key fob because it was for the car he was driving. So, there, you know, there the the dna evidence was just not there to support the hypothesis the portuguese police had had come to bank on and in the you know we put this evidence the alleged forensic evidence to a senior irish forensic uh, scientist and she examined it and she said to us you know this is a whole lot of nothing and, and that's what we had a whole lot of nothing is the only evidence which links the McCann family to the disappearance of Madeline, the dogs and the subsequent DNA furor that came around that? Well, it isn't the only evidence because a great feature of this case, and it can't be said often enough, 
is there wasn't, isn't any evidence, no evidence that we've known about, and we come or come to learn about it anyway. There's no evidence. There is witness testimony, lots of it, which is interesting to explore. But basically, there is no evidence. I think there, that is the only suspicious finding. Yes. People have question marks over the McCann, the timeline presented by the McCanns, but the police have concluded that the timeline discrepancies are the discrepancies of people telling the truth mm -hmm. about an event they're being asked to recall, you know, in a time of stress. And people don't necessarily get things to the minute correct. Mm -hmm. They were on a holiday, you know, they were at a dinner table, they may be off by three minutes, they may be off by five, but essentially people told the same story consistently enough that they were they were credible. You know, I think police officers quite often and other investigators, if somebody's story is too perfect, that's more of a worry than, you know, the nine people who are all basically telling you what they remember. Yeah. And everybody's memory is going to be a little bit different because she was tying her shoe at the time or she was worrying about her own crying baby. But essentially, they all told the same story. I mean, anyone who's listening who has ever tried to think back to a situation which occurred even a day ago under no stress, being able to get your timeline perfectly accurate. And then on top of that, people who are listening as well, think about the last time that there was a even slightly big secret that was held by more than five of your friends. Like it's lasted, it's lasted it microseconds before everybody knows about it. The, the thought that the entire party of nine to 10 people were all complicit in in the disappearance and then covering it up and then never telling anyone and no one ever slipping up etc cetera, etc cetera. it seems very it seems very unlikely so you you touched on it there there's no evidence of where madeline mccann went is this almost as if someone's gone in and just plucked her out of thin air and poof oh yes entirely i mean she as i it kind of said it can't be stressed enough so i'm going to boringly stress it again there is no evidence. It was she just vanished to all intents and purposes, completely vanished. Uh, what has been interesting down the months has been qu quarrying the um, the testimony. Look, if, if there were three possibilities, how did the little girl vanish from the flat? Possibility one. Did she, as the little girl who was about to be four years old, did she wander out of the, the apartment that night, maybe going to show mummy and daddy she was about to be four? Look, mummy and daddy, I'm big enough to come to your restaurant table, which was just 60 yards as the crow flies, the other side of the swimming pool. Um, here I am. And did she try to do that? Well, and did she, that was there then an opportunist abduction? Maybe unlikely that happens to bump into the one fellow or woman in the street who wants to steal a child, pretty unlikely. But there is a possibility. The streets were riddled at that time with deep trenches. Um, uh, they were re re redoing the sewer, sewer and water system for, for the town. Deep, I mean, really deep trenches. And um, I, I, as, uh, it is not a stupid theory, to hypothesis, to wonder whether she fell into one of these trenches and maybe got covered up by the first scoop of the bulldozer in the morning. But 
the workmen who were working on the trenches said they hadn't seen anything like that. So that that is one possibility. Second possibility was the was it which Scotland Yard pursued for quite a while. Was it a burglary gone wrong? Um, there had been um, a rash of burglaries, an awful lot of burglaries, which incidentally none of the people staying at that beach resort had been warned about. But people breaking into apartments to steal money, to steal a camera, um, steal a phone. Um, had a had it, had a burglary gone wrong? Had the little girl started to make a noise while the burglar was there? Had something gone terribly wrong when he tried to silence her? Well, um, I, 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 con conceivably, there's no evidence of it, except that there were burglaries and there were some men suspected or or being involved in those burglars in those burglaries um, who whose phones were near the apartment that night, checks eventually found. Um, and that they were interviewed and were for a while formal suspects. But there's no evidence that happened. There is, however, a third possibility, which we have leaned towards. We're not claiming to, to know anything that is special, but we have gathered all the information and there is the information that makes us lean towards the notion that she may have been abducted deliberately in a planned abduction from the flat are these. Um, there is pretty good information from three or four witnesses that the apartment was watched in those days and on the day itself of Madeline's disappearance. Man seeming to noticeably be leaning on a wall, looking, eyeballing apartment 5A um, on, on, on different days and seen by the same witness on, on different days. And then on the very afternoon of the disappearance, when the McCanns and the children were out playing tennis or at the beach, doing the things you do on holiday, um, a woman in an apartment above the McCanns looked down and saw a man who seemed to sort of emerge furtively into the alleyway. Uh, this is in the afternoon. And then leave by the little gate that led to the main street, seeming to check the gate to see if um, it made a noise, as if to see if it made a noise. Did it squeak or something like that? It looked like somebody on a reconnaissance operation. Whether it was or not is another matter, but it did look like that. There is also the matter of the charity workers, and perhaps Robin would like to describe that. Well, there were in that period, just around the time Madeline disappeared, men going door to door in the in the Ocean Club Resort and in the apartment complexes nearby, collecting for what they claimed was an orphanage in a nearby village. Well, we went to the nearby village and there wasn't and had never been anything like an orphanage there. Uh, we contacted this, you know, the state agency that operates such, you know, such programs. Never was an orphanage there, so these men, whatever they were doing, it wasn't collecting for an orphanage. Now, perhaps they were casing for burglaries later. Perhaps they were just pulling off a small fraud, collecting bits and bits, bits and bobs of change. But perhaps they were also doing something else. And one of the the most troubling uh, incidents we we heard about and we were told about was one in which a charity collector came to the door 
And while the mother of the house was dealing with him, she noticed that the man seemed to be talking to her, but looking over her shoulder at her three-year-old daughter who was playing on the floor behind her. Later that day, she noticed the man loitering about. The following day, while she was upstairs doing the laundry, uh, she started to come down the stairs. And as she did so, she noticed that the man was in her living room with her three-year-old child. Now, as soon as he caught sight of the mother, he scampered away, you know, back out the door and gone. And, and, and she didn't catch up to him. But given that, you know, charity collector, three-year-old girl, it does sound troubling. And those things were not properly investigated at the time and were being investigated by uh, the British police and their Portuguese counterparts in this latter investigation that has taken place since 2011. But the third possibility and the thing that we've just described about the charity workers may be part of the third possibility um, is, and it's really startling, it didn't emerge for years until Scotland Yard put it together and made it public, which is that in the years before and just after Madeleine disappeared, um, there had been uh, tw uh, 28, 28 episodes of an intruder um, coming, getting into flats and apartments, usually with British children, within 40 miles of Prior de Luz. Now that's a high rate of intrusions but, but by any standards in a, in a small place. And the man would, would come in, usually it appeared to be from the descriptions of the children, as far as they could manage from being woken in the night, was of a swarthy man with st stubble on his face, talking English, but in a, an evidently foreign accent with a sort of funny smell about him, which the, the children couldn't describe. Um, and in one particularly chilling incident, which we, we found out about actually, um, the, the man had come in and got onto the bed with a little girl whose sister was in the room and she'd said, um, something like, is that you, Daddy? And, and of course, it wasn't Daddy. The man, though, um, had had a medical mask over his face, um, covering his mouth and most of his cheeks, and had um, cloth, uh, towels or, or tablecloths or cloths around his feet one would think perhaps to make sure he didn't need footprints on the parquet floor, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, on that occasion, the little girl was not um, sexually assaulted in any way, but in other, on other occasions, the little girls had been sexually assaulted. Now, the local constabulary, uh, we described this before, there are two constabularies, in, two police forces in Portugal, the Guardia Civil, which is the the, the regular policeman, the guy who, who drives the patrol car around, the guy who d does traffic duty and so on, and the PJ, the Policia Judiciara, um, who do investigations. Now, clearly, breaking into houses and messing with, with little girls is a job for the, the PJ, the Policia Judiciara. And in almost all occasions, the mothers of those other children said have said, 
um, only the local cops came and you know took down a few details and then ambled away and there was no follow-up it is a shocking realization and it can it plays into the the theory coupled to the man watching um the man testing the gate um and and the suspect um, charity collectors it all plays into the notion that she was deliberately abducted that would also the fact that the intruder was so prepared it would appear with a mask over his face with um towels around his feet would play into the fact that there was no prints that were found at the crime scene of Madeline's disappearance. It might. It might, indeed. There was, a know, pa- they, was there a partial palm print? There were a few partial prints. They were later identified, and uh, please don't quote me on this, because I, there, most of them were not identifiable. One of them belonged to Kate McCann. One of them belonged to one of the police officers who was doing the fingerprint work, I believe. <laughs> um, again, not great disciplines in some cases <laughs> in terms of gathering the fingerprints. Yeah. Um, the, the, we have one thing we haven't touched on it. And again, it's, it's important evidence and it's important in terms of people as they're thinking about this case is that there, there were two sightings that night that have been considered particular of particular possible relevance, which is that at, um, at about nine fifteen, please forgive me. I'm not, I don't have the paperwork in front of me. The McCann's f- friend, Jane Tanner was, um, coming back from the the tapas area where they were having their their meal and as she was approaching the intersection of the street on which the mccann's apartment was located she saw a man a man who appeared to be dressed not like a tourist but more in more sort of heavy proper clothing than you normally saw the tourists in a dark jacket and a kind of mustardy or tanny trousers with dark hair slightly long at the back and this man was carrying a child and he was carrying the child like this, which you can't really see in your podcast, but with his arms outstretched and the little child laying across them in a kind of awkward posture. But the child seemed to be deeply asleep and she was wearing pajamas. He or she was wearing pajamas. And the reason I use the word she is because the pajama pants apparently had a light pink or florally pattern, much as later was described by Kate McCann pajamas of Madeline had been that night. Now, lots of little girls wear such pajamas. It's not a a, a definitive thing by any means. That man was seen. For years, one didn't know who he was. Um, In 2013, the British investigators, uh, the, the police came forward and said they thought that they knew who the man was at this point and that he had come forward originally and identified himself and had not ever found its way into the record and that he was a British tourist, uh, another doctor, in fact, who'd been carrying his own daughter home from the babysitting service from the crash. Completely legit. There's only one oddity in that, and those of us who have looked at this case closely have all registered it, and that's that the direction that the man that Jane Tanner saw seemed to have been traveling in the opposite direction of the man that the man might or should have been taking had he been doing that. Now... We can't explain that. We cannot explain that anomaly. It perhaps has been uh, satisfactorily explained to the police. I would note that the McCann family's website, where they keep a kind of updated um, postings on this case, they remain that, that the the police artist sketch of that man remains up 
and he is still considered a perfect person of interest. So I think there may still be some small doubt about that. And then there's a second incident, um, a second incident um, at about 10 o'clock that night, um, described by an Irish family. Perhaps Tony would like to describe that one. Well, it, it, about 10 o'clock that night, which is precisely the moment that back at apartment 5A, um, Mrs. McCann found her child missing. Um, and another another man, or a, a man, was seen carrying a child coming down the steps, actually. It's a sort of street of, of, of steps um, by a family of a large Irish family of, of what, eight, 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 uh, a, a large, a large family. Um, and um, he, the, the memory was that he didn't um, say anything. I, I believe they said good night because it was late, or, good evening, or what's that? And he did just didn't respond. Walked solidly on. Now he, he could have been another innocent father bringing his child home, or could he? Could he maybe have been? Could this have been another sighting, a relevant sighting? of an abductor taking Madeline away. There is no answer has been found to this. Much confusion has been caused over it um, uh, because at one point um, the father in that family that saw uh, the child, that child being, being carried later saw, had, had seen Jerry McCann, Madeline's father, um, arriving back in Leicestershire off a plane. And he thought, oh, that looks like the guy we saw that night. Um, but the rest of the family didn't think this. I, I think the, the, the father in the family thought it possibly because of the way that he was, Jerry McCann was carrying one, one of his other children at, at, at the time that he was getting off the plane um, and put, put somehow put two and two together and made about 20. <laughs> Um, they, uh, they explained it on his gait, didn't they? They said that's the posture he, of someone. Exactly. He thought it, the, yeah. his posture and his, his gait. His posture, it just reminded him. On the, on the other hand, there are only so many ways to carry a baby. That's it, yeah. And, and, and most of the point in, in this episode is the fact that there is multiple evidence that at that moment at 10 o'clock, Jerry McCann was first at the Tapas restaurant with, with his crowd of, of friends, um, having his dinner and then rushing to help his wife and searching searching for Madeline. So the man on the street with the steps wasn't him. What was the distance between the tapas restaurant or apartment 5A and the sighting by the Smith family? We, when we walked it, it it's, it's not five minutes. It's, it's very close. Right. Um, you know, well, it's... Yeah, I'm not sure, but it, it wasn't... It wasn't so, so if the the implication from Jane Tanner you said was nine fifteen, yeah. So there's a fa- it, it seems odd for it have to have been the same man. That seems very yeah. unlikely unless he paused somewhere. Yeah. Because there's a forty five minute gap, forty five minute ish gap between one sighting and the other. Now you are relying on both Jane Tanner and the Smiths being very exact in their timings. But they, they are pretty reasonable in their timings because of Jane Tanner was timing things sort of because of when she was doing checks on children. And the, the Irish family, I, I think, they, tamed, they were timing it to the time of, of sort of 
but pub closings and bar, last. bar closing time. I forget Some, the exact detail, but one knew the the time more or less. You 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 go to an important point then though, here though about the timing. You're on holiday. You're going out to dinner. There's no suggestion, by the way, that anyone was rip roaring drunk. Uh, uh, any any of the individuals involved. But you're on holiday. It's getting dark. It's late. Pubs are closing. Um, bar, little bars, coffee bars are closing. It, it's the end of the day, and you're all on holiday. You're not watching your watch to see whether, in the case of the doctors, that they got to go to another patient. They were relaxing on holiday. You can't. I don't know what I was doing at precisely two o'clock this afternoon, and I'm sure you don't either. Agreed. So I wanted. It isn't yet. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, yeah. In three hours' time, I'll work out whether or not it is. Um, so I wanted to touch on on two things uh, before we finish up. So uh, firstly, I wanted to ask what the current status of the investigation is. The current status of the investigation is that every year for the last couple of years, um, the Met has asked for a small tranche of money, 150,000 uh, pounds to cover, you know, six months of work or three months of work. And uh, they have scaled back their team from about 30 officers to only three or four. They have said repeatedly that they are pursuing a line of inquiry, uh, that they want to finish before they conclude their investigation. They, they have a line of inquiry that they think important enough to continue to want to pursue. The money always seems to run out in March and in September, uh, and they have just requested um, funding for a full year. Now that's interesting. Um, it's interesting to us, and, and this is, can only be conjecture, one would imagine they wouldn't be doing that unless they thought, A, that it was completable in that amount of time, or that they had something that they thought was important enough, but perhaps a little bit more complex than they originally had forecast it would be, that they really needed to work on for that time. So so one wonders the, the investigation is continuing. It remains an open investigation in Portugal as well. But as of this moment, we're in a, a, a rather in a, a bit of a news vacuum. How about... Uh, how about the um, the McCann's private investigation? Is that obviously they will still be doing things themselves? But my about- impression, and it can only be an impression, um, we have not been involved with the McCann's personally, person to person, for some time now, for a matter of years. Um, but we 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 had the impression that even then, as soon as Scotland Yard took over the case in England, and then. That the Portuguese who had shelved the case up to then got back in to the investigation themselves, liaising amicably at that point uh, with Scotland Yard, um, that the McCanns, who had previously used private investigators to to, to dig all over the all over Europe and further and beyond, um, that they ceased and left it to the police, which was only right. You can't have cops and private detectives all going at things, um, hammer and tongs uh, at the same time. Um, my impression is that they are now waiting, being briefed by Scotland Yard when it is relevant to brief them, and 
trying to get on with their lives. A very difficult task because they are still pursued venomously by the by internet trolls. So this touches who are upon... still spreading spreading poison about their supposed involvement in the death of their own daughter. Which this... I don't think we've had a, had a moment to stress it. And if we are um, soon to complete this conversation, we should we would like to stress the, the, the fact that in all the work we've done on this case, we never found an iota of an indication that the McCanns had in any way been guiltily involved in their daughter's disappearance. That was the point that I wanted to finish on, which is, I think, because of the obsession, I have a number of friends who like to read uh, crime drama, um, NCIS, and and, and uh, true crime detective things. A lot of podcasts, Atlanta Monster, The Zodiac Killer, all of these stories, which are some fiction, some fact, and then somewhere between adaptations and all of the rest of it. There is a obsession at the moment, or a particular kind of almost romanticizing of these cases in in uh, the general public, and. I think very quickly what people forget is that there are real people on the other side of this. It's what we touched on in the beginning, that when the internet trolls go at it with regards to authors like yourselves, they forget that it's not uh, just a title, it's an actual person behind it. And one thing that kept on coming to me throughout watching the Netflix series was if, as the evidence would suggest the McCanns aren't implicated in the disappearance of their daughter. If that is true, the extra degree of suffering that the McCanns have been put through is almost unfathomable. And unforgivable. You said it, you've, you've said it incredibly well, that that is, is absolutely true. If, you know, the evidence suggests that the McCanns are are the victims of a crime or a terrible tragedy. And to, to see them daily um, having brickbats thrown at them, even uh, seeing that there are those who, even having seen the Netflix film, which I think comes out firmly, they did enormous amounts of research, and it comes out firmly showing um, the flawed investigation that led to their the, the McCanns being implicated. There are still people who are using that as an excuse to vilify the McCanns, and I, I just think, where is your compassion? There is, you know, one thing we should say: we've sort of lost touch in in, in this long conversation with with Madeline herself. Is Madeline herself alive? Could she be alive? Well, the answer is perhaps the best of the child protection experts in the world say one should never leave hope, and there is a significant figure. The only published statistics on this are in the United States. Of children that have disappeared, the latest figures show 40% end up, sadly, are found dead um, or known to have died. 56% eventually turn up, even after 10, 15, 20 years. And so parents should never lose hope. 
And I think the clear indication is that the McCanns have not and refuse to lose hope. It's a very... It's thinking about what the McCanns go through. I'm an empathetic individual, and for anyone else listening out there who is as well, it's painful to watch the way that they go through the situation and they're forced to do these press interviews and uh, and try and... uh, They're getting scrutinised for the fact that Jerry McCann and his, his wife don't show enough emotion. And you're like, well... What do you want me to do? Do you want me to break down crying on air or do you want me to get the message across which we think will actually help our daughter? Should I be over dramatic or should I try and be productive? And, you know, I, I ask for the people who are listening to think how would they have reacted? Like genuinely, genuinely, how would you have reacted in this situation? What, what would the, your capacity to hold your emotions have been? Cause I've worked on the front door of nightclubs for, over a decade, and I see when someone gets knocked back by a doorman that they lose their shit. Their 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 arms are in the air, and they're saying that their their dad's a solicitor, and this is going to happen. And you think, right, this was a, a nat, a nanogram compared with the situation that these people go through. And mm-hmm. how how are you? Supposed, there's no way to prepare for this. One point that I thought was very, very interesting, which was done by the um, Russian computer programmer that was briefly implicated because he'd done Robert Murat's website. One thing he says on the Netflix show is, no one teaches you how to behave in this situation. And he's referring to when he comes out of the uh, his apartment, I th- think he gets into a car and he drives away. And essentially what he says is, at no point in your life are you taught what is the optimal strategy to do when this happens? And you extrapolate that forward to the higher degree of scrutiny over a longer term that the McCanns have been through. And you think, well, yeah, what what becomes normal? What is normal in that situation? Absolutely. There's no such thing as normal when the child that you have, the precious child that you have, come by thanks to IVF, as in the case of Madeline, disappears off the face of the earth, just like that. There's nothing normal. I couldn't agree more. Guys, I I really appreciate your time for coming on today. Am I right in thinking that there is an updated version of your book now available? Uh, There is. There is an updated version of our book, Looking for Madeline, and... um if you would like to, we can, we can, I don't know what you use for your publicity, but we can send you a cover of the book. We don't, we don't have the, the physical book in, in our hands, in our yet hands. because, um, because it, we're in Ireland and our publisher is in England. It was only, um, went on the streets at the moment. The, the, uh, Netflix series came out, but we can send you a JPEG of it, which fantastic. Well, to the listeners, very grateful if you would use it. That's fine. To the listeners who want to, as you know, the Modern Wisdom Amazon shopfront will have this book in the show notes below. All you need to do is click through. If you do purchase from there, you will be supporting the show at no extra cost to yourself. And also you will be able to do some further reading on what has been a, a reignited and fascinating topic. If you have some friends who you know enjoyed the documentary please share this episode with them. I'm sure that they would be interested to find out some more information about this. And I'm right in thinking that uh, Anthony and Robin, you're about to go and begin work on another book. Is that right? Yes. You tell us, what should we be writing about? Oh, wow. (laughs)
Well, I tell you what, if the listeners done many of that, and we even I even in in my foolishness, um, long time ago, did a book that hasn't been torn to pieces by the by the hounds yet on the Kennedy assassination. We did a, a biography of Richard Nixon. We we you've named some of the books we've done. What should we be doing next? Oh wow, what was I like? Um, well, the the uh, Mueller reports just come out. And a good idea. I think one or two other people might be paying attention to. I think a couple of people. And and to a man called Trump. Um, yeah. We have a thought of doing a book about uh, nu- nuclear warfare, nu- nuclear matters. And we, because I find that whereas my generation um, and, and people younger than me um, were acutely aware of, of the nuclear threat, um, d- during the Cold War and so on, um, that now you talk to anybody under 40, really, and to an awful lot of people under 40 or younger, and, and say, um, Hiroshima, and they say, what? Didn't quite get that. Don't, don't, they don't really don't know what it was. And mention Three Mile Island to them, which of course is not, not a bomb, but a, a disastrous leak of radiation from, from a power plant. And they say, Three Mile Island, uh, one of, somebody said to me, Three Mile, Three Mile Island, well, that must be where they dropped another of those bombs. I, I mean, so we think that since the nuclear threat is still real, that maybe we'll write about that. So I will put in the show notes below for anyone who would care to listen to it. But Sam Harris recently did a podcast with Professor Nick Bostrom from the Future of Humanities Institute. And this guy is the world's expert on existential threats, essentially. And the uh, particular discussion that he had was um, very grounding. I've listened to a lot of Nick's work and some of the listeners will have done as well. But I'll, uh, I'll send it to you guys once we finish. I highly recommend that. Another interesting point for people who listen to my episode with Jordan Hall, the owner and founder of Neurohacker, also the founder of the DivX codec from 20 years ago, he is thinking about how to redesign civilization as a whole from game A to game B, a game which mm-hmm. is based on conflict to a game which is based on collaboration. And um, one of the things that he brought up there when you're talking about the, the nuclear threat and existential threats generally at the behest of humans in the, in the world is that as technology advances, previously it would have taken huge resources to cause a small amount of damage. As time progresses and technology progresses, unfortunately it swings to the other side. And as Nick Bostrom's famous example is, he says, we didn't know what it took to create an atomic bomb. Now it Mm -hmm. could have taken putting sand in a microwave. If all that it took to create an atomic bomb was to put sand in a microwave you would have this emancipated, delegated, distributed capacity for destruction on a huge scale in the hands of people who have a a kitchen appliance. Now, fortunately, because of the way that physics are put together, that's not the case. But it might not have been so. It might have been the case. When some of the first atomic bombs were detonated in the atmosphere, they didn't know whether or not it was going to literally ignite the entire atmosphere. And they were prepared to do those tests. Take that chance. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, hey, if you guys, if you go for 
nuclear end game and uh, and that sort of stuff i'm we're gonna have you back i would love i would love to discuss that one as well although if it takes 25 years we may be um we may be waiting no we're not allowed we're not allowed to take 25 years to do a book well you know we have have children to support you know that the the song they that they play at the end of dr strangelove or how to stop worrying and love the bomb um is we'll meet again don't know where don't know when um but I know we'll meet again someday. So maybe we'll meet again when we do the nuclear book. That sounds fantastic. Guys, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. 